0: Welcome to the Rights Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm live in person in Hammersmith with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney, and Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Also with us in person's are Bill Brewster. Hi there, and Frank Broughton. Hello. Welcome, <laughs> gentlemen. Bill and Frank are the revered founders of DJ History and the co-authors of Dance Music Bible, Last Night at DJ Saved My Life, which is just being published in its third edition by Lee Braxton's White Rabbit imprint. We're going to talk about that seminal book, obviously, plus we'll hear clips from a wonderful audio interview you guys did with drum and bass DJ Fabio. And on a much sadder note, we cannot avoid talking today about Dom Phillips the former Mixmag editor for whom both our guests wrote and whose voice indeed is heard in Last Night at DJ Saved My Life. Bill, Frank, let's start with a quote from the book's new intro, which made me chuckle. We wanted the grown-ups with their Beatles books to understand that DJing is clever and complex and very influential. Now, thankfully, we can relax. (laughs) 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 Bill, would you care to comment on that?
1: Well, I think when we originally wrote the book, we were on a bit of a mission to kind of establish the DJ beyond the general perception of what they did, which was playing other people's records. What's so clever about playing other people's records, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, as we dug more and more into the past, we realized that they'd had a huge impact on the direction of popular music in all kinds of different ways yeah, the different uses of technology the different ways in which they pushed music forward and we kind of wanted to bang a drum about that and about disco which was a dirty word when we wrote the book still and now obviously all of those things have changed I think most people accept that the DJ does have a place in in kind of popular music history and equally nowadays there are disco festivals every other weekend so obviously the the idea of disco being slightly laughable has, has thankfully disappeared and and I hope that our books kind of started the ball rolling and contributed to that kind of feeling. Frank did
0: you both have the same sort of missionary zeal when you started talking about doing this book?
2: Well, the book started, I mean, the gestation was that it was going to be a book about disco. And that was from living in New York, meeting each other and talking about a lot of the people we'd met in clubs who had fabulous stories, you know, older gay guys who'd survived the AIDS crisis, just telling you about the sort of decadence of the 70s and 80s. And obviously, the music was important to us. And then the brainwave came when we were back here. Doug Young at Headline, who commissioned the book, said, well, why don't you write the whole history of the DJ? Because no one's really done that before, and that uh, was like a bit between the teeth, really, because we just thought, right, well, we're going to nail it, and so uh, <laughs> I think we went quite megalomaniac on it. I think we were in a good position because we had a transatlantic perspective. We knew that dance music had started before 1989, and probably, <laughs> probably be- <laughs> before Evita. It's quite a <laughs> <laughs> And I think, you know, just from writing about dance music, we had a lot of the story in our heads. We kind of knew a lot of the important moments, certainly in where DJs had been influential and changing the the craft and influencing music. And I guess that would be hip-hop and it would be disco. And really they're the dual axles on which the story turns, I guess. No, you do go...
3: Sensibly further back, I mean, one of the featured people in the, the first edition, certainly, I don't know he still is featured in the second edition quite so much, is Jimmy Savile, who was a sort of pioneering DJ in Yorkshire in the 50s, would that, would that be? Otley? Utley,
2: be- yeah. Utley <laughs> in Leeds. Well, they, I mean, Bill was talking to a lot of the Northern Soul guys, and they were, it, was, it was them who really turned us on to his role. right.
1: I mean, we've obviously rewritten that part of the book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Strange (laughs) that. But but he is still in it, and I think his influence is undeniable. Whatever his motivations were, and and obviously in many cases they they weren't particularly benign, but we felt like we couldn't erase him from that history.
3: We Um, have your audio interviews with him here,
4: (laughs) and we've (laughs) just sat there on that show. And we've
3: sort of slightly questioned whether or not we should. Post them on the site. <laughs> it, like, well, you know, exactly. It is,
1: I mean, it is difficult. And I, I've had like, a number of people saying he shouldn't be in it. And I'm like, well, you history, can't rewrite history. history is messy. Yeah. And things yes. that people that you don't necessarily like or don't approve yeah. of do amazing things sometimes. And you can't really, you have to kind of square that with what they did and who they are as a person. Yeah. You have to separate out those things. And
3: anything involving... Things like well, music, popular music is full of people of all kinds of horrifying sort of. You can't you know, write them <laughs> all. You can't. <laughs> <you know, laughs> there can't be anything
2: less.
0: Much less. <laughs> 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 no, no.
2: Well, I think it's it's important to remember that he wasn't really a music lover, and it, and it right. was very much the entrepreneurial side. Yeah. So, if that makes it easier to live with him. He was very much just chasing the money and right. chasing the adoration yeah. and, and the fringe benefits as he saw them,
3: but with two turntables
2: I mean, well that, that wasn't unusual in radio right I mean it's true. we've got there 's a picture in the book of Christopher Stone, who was the first kind of music playing DJ on the BBC mm-hmm. and that 's from the '30s and he 's got this custom made double turntable right. so you know it's not an idea that was new Jimmy Savile's story was that normally there'd be one. Record player in a in a cinema, that was kind of where they were installing it, and he said, "Well can I have two right I mean, you have to take his stories with a little bit of a pinch of salt because mm-hmm. he was such a relentless self publicist, mm-hmm. but what is undeniable is that he moved the u k from dance bands to dJs yeah. and he was important and he was recognized by the Mecca dance hall organization and he was sent around the country to to instigate this. He was right. sent around to actually bring in this new format, explain how it worked, hire djs, train them. Mm-hmm. And such, so it was it was kind of an economic shift that he brought about, and you know that's very entrepreneurial. But I, I think music and, and a love of music was far from his mind.
0: <laughs> Bill, how did you get into dance music in the first place? I mean, what was the record, or the moment, or the club where you became a sort of disciple?
1: Well, I had a minor flirtation with it in 1976 when I was at an FE college in Grimsby and two of my friends who were gay took me to a northern soul night at Cleethorpes Winter Gardens, which, which I really enjoyed. But then I saw the Sex Pistols quite soon after at, at the same venue. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid the Sex Pistols won out over um, in Takeaway Painstain. <laughs> 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 um, so, you know, at the time I was 17 and the Sex Pistols kind of spoke to me in a much more immediate way. So I think really my introduction to it came from post-punk. So I was an avid reader of the rock press and was really, you know, re- bought the enemy religiously every week. And really, it was bands like A Certain Ratio that kind of changed me, I think. I went to see them play three or four times. I went to see them in particular in late 81, playing in Leeds. And we, all the people that we went together to this gig, where they were promoting their new album, Sextet, we formed a band the next day, and we were trying to make kind of our version of dance music, which was sort of influenced <laughs> by Gang of Four, A Certain Ratio, 23 Skidoo, but also bands like Tower of Power and Graham Central Station. So we had a brass section and... Yeah, we were we were doing a you know, kind of a skinny white grimbarian version of Thank Music. <laughs> yeah. <in a> <laughs> Is there any <laughs> recorded evidence that's built? Bill? Yeah, yeah, we we actually got a record deal. We were signed by Saul Galpin, who oh, later ran nude. Um, nude and signed Suede. So he he was A and Ring for a label called Camera with a with a K, who had um, a kind no, no, they had uh, Mark Harmon, The Fall. Uh, L.A. L.A., Palace Schoenberg, Brigandage were on that label. There were a a few kind of interesting acts on that label. And we put out one single, got played by Kid Jensen, got played by John Peel. And uh, someone amazingly uploaded it to YouTube as well. So if you want to hear the full full horror of my vocals, then... Sorry, name of the act? uh, We were called Group Therapy and we did a (laughs) single called Artifact.
4: Um, that's
1: going into that's the That's definitely <laughs> that's definitely going to the episode. <laughs> so yeah, that, I'm, I'm yeah, from there it just I I just listened to indie music much much less as the eighties wore on and listen to a lot more hip-hop and electro and then house and but also i was like delving into the past in a heavy way in the 80s so i was buying all of those like soundstage seven reissues on charlie of like roscoe robinson and ella washington yeah, and yeah. all of those kind of things so just massively getting into like old black music and new black music so but i'd say by about 85 86 i'd completely disowned rock music and <laughs> wasn't listening to any <laughs> Is of it official? <laughs> Date. Never listen to another rock record after. Well, I I remember
0: read another Beatles book. Well, I I, I went to the Pixies
1: in in 1987 at the Brixton Academy, and then I don't think I saw another rock band for about 15 years. so (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I just really, I was, I just really got into recorded music much more than live music. So 12 inches and albums were was my kind of obsession.
0: Makes sense. Frank, what's your story when it comes to dance music? I'm quite a late developer, I suppose. I I was in London
2: in 1989 and I was one of those people that didn't really get house music. And I was still wedded to kind of, uh, I mean, it was Rare Groove was the big thing. And I was I was very much about old soul records, funk and soul and, of course, hip hop and things like that. And it was really only when I ended up in New York in the early 90s that I really started enjoying going clubbing. I went to High on Hope, um, Norman Jay's club, and I went to Manassa. So that was really my sort of London clubbing debuts. But then in New York, I started, uh, went to, went to a few straight clubs and really just thought, this is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I, remember the, I remember going to the limelight, and it was when techno was just really coming in, into New York and getting a presence on major dance floors. And I just thought, this is just too testosterone for me, and then uh, ended up, Going with some friends to see Frankie Knuckles at the Roxy, and that was yeah. transformational, really. Wow. Just sort of Thank seeing you. Frankie play, and it was a very kind of flamboyant, very um, just. Lo- there was a, there was a runway. Let's put it that way. There was a runway <laughs> on the dance floor. It was one of those kind of nights yeah, yeah. and everyone everyone was amazing and beautiful. And, and and then someone actually picked me up and said, "Do you want to come to the Sound Factory with us?" This isn't. This is after going to the Roxy regularly, and I was like, "Well, you, you know, I'm straight, and then like, that's okay. That's okay." <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, I'll get to the sound factory then. And so someone paid for me to go to the sound factory the first time to see Junior Vasquez, which transformed my life, really, because I think the way that he played music, it was so tribal and so just you, you would just lose yourself in these mm-hmm. endless records that just went on. And it was about the time of sort of wild pitch, DJ Pierre kind of sound, that sort of hypnotic house music where very little changes and it's just quite minimal. So yeah, and then around uh, a couple of years later, Bill turns up in New York, and uh, the rest
1: is history. <laughs> <laughs> the rest is well, history. You, you started
0: yeah.
3: putting on parties in New York,
1: didn't you? Yeah, the, your low life
3: parties. Yeah, out. I
1: mean, we, we started putting on parties because the Sound Factory closed, and we didn't have anywhere to go on a Saturday <laughs> night. I mean, great, great. I think the factory closed in Feb '95, and I think we did our first party within like two months, and we we did. Like four or five when we were living in New York. And it didn't have a name at the time. Right. And then we moved back to the UK end of 86 and started doing them early 87 in the UK. And again we didn't have a name for them until we'd done about four or five. Yeah. So I think we'd maybe done as many as ten parties before we actually realised that we were going to keep doing parties yeah, it, and maybe we should give them a name.
3: Uh, I, I first met Bill when my band played Daytime Live in 1988. And Bill was Basically
1: Pebble Mill at One Pebble with at Alan one. <laughs> Exactly,
3: with Alan Titchmarsh. Uh, and Bill was writing for a football fanzine When Saturday Comes and had just come back from Albania where he'd been escorted a group of fans to go and watch England play at then Enver Hodges' Communist Albania. Uh, and we were on it. And so we, we, became, we hung out for a bit. We almost shared offices and all that. And then there was a big gap. And then my nephew took me to Fabric in 2000, the first, time, first, time I'd ever, the first pill I'd ever taken and so on and so forth. <laughs> and we were standing outside at six in the morning and, you know, they give out the flyers. And I get this bunch of flyers. And we're looking through them. And there's your name. And I said, oh, I know Bill. My nephew says, oh, you... he wrote last night a DJ saved my life. The, the Bible of dances. You know, we laughed. A week later, I got an email from you out of the blue saying, I've got your copy of Nelson George's Where Did Our Love Go? and you're not getting it back. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the next thing you know, you, you come, so come down to Fabric, we saw you down at Fabric, then it's come to one of our life parties and that was the beginning of a very extended elderly adolescence for me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's yeah, such lessons. a great story. Have yeah. you still got the Nelson George book? Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's still not this, get it back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is pointedly didn't bring it in. it in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've, we've had quite a few guests sort of going public, as it were, on air with like, Debt's I still owe Simon yeah. Frith £200. <laughs> <that>? I think <laughs> it was, it was only
4: 20 quid. <laughs> was just 20 yeah, it was 20 quid, like,
0: probably. Which was worth probably 200 Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, well, so you've still got the book.
4: Yeah. And I've
3: got to thank you for what says so 2000, so now I've mm. 20, 20 years of really great parties that I've been going to, as directly as a consequence of you two guys, you know completely you corrupted me <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah i can attest to that <laughs> uh, it uh, it was
4: pleasure.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> he was never the same again um t- guys tell me just a bit about Mixmag, and then we'll talk about don phillips but Mixmag, you both wrote for when were you first when did you first write for it when were you first aware
1: of it were you, who was um, the first to write for it i think Probably i you? might have been just before you frank Basically, it happened because of When Saturday Comes. So I was working at When Saturday Comes, and Nick Gordon-Brown, who at the time was assistant editor at Mag, probably about 1990, called the When Saturday Comes office, and Nick was a big football fan. He supported oh. Queen's Park Rangers. And the editor, Dave Seaman, also the, the DJ Dave Seaman, is a big Leeds United fan, so they were really into football. And they rang When Saturday Comes to get someone from When Saturday Comes to write bits about football for, for Mag. And we got talking on the phone and I was going out clubbing regularly and, and once he realised that he started commissioning me to kind of do bit little bits and bobs for MixMag. So I carried on freelancing for MixMag while I was still at When Saturday Comes. And then when I left When Saturday Comes, the end of kind of towards the end of ninety-three, Nick offered me a job working for DMC, the parent company. So I I edited the... We, they did a weekly trade magazine called Mixmag Update, which went out every Thursday to record stores and DJs, people in the music industry. I edited that for a year, and then I, and then I was offered the job of running the DMC office in New York, which is how I met Frank, because Frank was working for Update USA, which was their monthly trade magazine in, in America. And Frank was one of the writers. So basically we started working together as soon as I moved to... Uh, states okay frank well, how do you remember don yeah,
2: phillips he was just one of those people that's interested in everybody a, a really beautiful gentle soul and, and i think that goes to the heart of his
3: journalism uh, we've just got to say at this point listeners um, that don phillips has died in brazil murdered yes. with i don't remember the name of his bruno ferreira Bruna think, Pereira. yeah, yeah. bruno uh, yeah. uh, uh ghastly ghastly event um so hence us remembering them now sorry frank carry on (laughs) well
2: i think i think his character he was such a positive person and such a gentle person and i think you know thinking about how i mean i met him through mix mag he commissioned my first feature so i had been writing for little things for id and mixed mag and hip hop connection, but mm-hmm. just little reviews and small pieces. And and Dom in '91, I think it was, asked me to write about New York techno. Uh-huh. So that was that was when I first met him, and he came over to New York um, shortly after that. And I remember going to a warehouse party with him in yeah. um, Williamsburg, where there were chickens on the dance floor, and he never <laughs> forgot that. I think every time <laughs> <I>
0: saw, <laughs> he'd me about that.
2: There were. Upside-down Christmas trees hanging from the ceiling and there was chickens on the dance floor. So that was always... <laughs> you, often, sure, yeah. you sure you just taken some particularly <laughs> yeah, I extreme so. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I mean, as a person, he was just... I, I think, you know, he wanted to... His, his title of his book was How to Save the Amazon Rainforest. And I remember him talking to me in sort of a positive way about how this was possible and how it 's all to do with empowering the indigenous people to be the protectors of their own lands and things like this and he really was on a mission to do it and and I think he's so driven and, and you know believing in a better future for the world and, and, and that 's the real tragedy you know i 'm not sure that his book will
1: see the light of day
4: right um, and
1: also i think um, and he was so, he underplayed what he was doing so much that when you when he came home and you spoke to him. There was never a sense that there was any danger in what he was doing at all. So this has just been so such, so shocking to realise how much risk he was actually taking. And I think we, I I'd certainly underestimated it because the last time he was at home, which was about maybe six months ago, we all went out for lunch together, didn't we? Uh, and he invited me to Salvador, which is where he would moved to recently with his wife. And
0: and that's in what part? Is that it's in the Amazon Basin, is it, Salvador? Where Except, no, Salvador's
1: kind of north of Rio, okay. but, but a good distance from okay. from the Amazon, I think. But he, I think his wife was from Salvador originally, and I think he just wanted a bit more of a less frenetic life because he'd been living in both Rio and Sao mm-hmm. Paulo, both of which are fairly crazy cities, and sure. I think he was... they talking about adopting children as well, and I think yeah. her family being there <coughs> made that sort
3: of... More
1: of a yeah yeah thing yeah. I mean, he was just he was just a, a really great guy, and just I don't know how, how something so violent could happen to somebody like him. It's just I don't think I'll ever kind of quite get my head around that. Right.
0: No, well, I'm I'm really sorry that you've lost your friend and and, and you know former colleague and editor. It's, it must it must be absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, It is heartbreaking just how under threat journalists are worldwide, particularly in Latin America, just in Mexico. It's just horrific, isn't it?
1: I mean, that's the worst thing, isn't it? As soon as you hear of someone going missing in Brazil or Mexico or somewhere like that, you automatically feel the worst. And unfortunately, that is what's happened.
2: But brave, I think we have to say. I mean, there's a clip of him speaking to Bolsonaro and uh, asking him very difficult questions shortly after he was... Elected um, about the rainforest and, and um, it, it leaves you, when you see it, it leaves you in no doubt that Bolsonaro was made to feel uncomfortable. Right, yes. And, yeah. and that's, you know, that's brave, that's proper yeah. journalism.
0: And he replied to Dom, the Amazon is ours, not yours. Which, of course, you know, takes us into the much bigger debate about, you know, the Amazon is is vital to everyone on the planet. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, unless you are a, a hardline climate sceptic, you know, it, it, it isn't just Bolsonaro's or Brazil's. And anyway, I mean, yeah, it's it's horrific. In last night you talk about the early days of mixed mag i think frank you said it was it was there was some fairly tasteless stuff like wet t-shirt <laughs> kind of, it was very hedonistic
2: well i think it was for uh, it was a trade mag for djs originally was yes. very much uh, the, and also the, the, the m-
1: mobile djs really yeah. more than, yeah. Yeah. than i mean DJs.
3: You, you say it's but i mean a magazine like music with a z is very much more wet t-shirt competition actually look at mixed mag and it, actually it's not too bad by the standards
1: of someone i think everyone I- is guilty of that hmm. objectification sure. to, to a certain extent and when you've got like, young pretty young girls dancing yeah. it is you know it's inevitable
4: unfortunately <laughs> and it's part like, of
5: what attracts a lot of people to dance music i mean yeah. you know the, the interview that we're going to listen to in a bit you know he's saying why why, why did i get into being a dj it was a good way
1: to get yeah. girls you know yeah. and i think
5: yeah. I, yeah. you know it, part of it in a way
1: yeah, I, I think I guess so. I not most, the... most of the really good DJs, I think, are essentially m- music salespeople. Yeah. They, they were, you know, from the age of about 13 or 14, I was making my own little pause button tapes to give to friends yeah. and to yeah. give to girlfriends. Yeah. And DJing yeah. is really just an extension of that. Yeah, it's absolutely. like, look at all this amazing music that I found. Yeah. Yeah. I want you to yeah, know yeah. about yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, and that's also the best dance halls yeah. aren't like
3: that either. I mean, I think there's a very difference than some of the more interesting, like your nights and, other sort of fairly underground nights like that. And going to let's say fabric where women have to virtually circle the wagons to keep the you know keep the men off themselves off them. But actually go into like a, a good dance for like whether it's Colleen's loft parties or your life parties. And they are really not predatory places at all. It's the opposite. It's all about celebration.
1: Yeah, uh, um, yeah and I, I hope that comes through. I mean we've always tried to kind of have no VIP yeah. no green room no special area everyone's the same and try and sort yeah, yeah. of treat it as a kind of area of equality for one night got yeah, yeah. no champagne buckets <laughs> <laughs> you, you obviously haven't been to a low
2: life <laughs> and a big area for chatting I think that Yes, there's always got to be a kitchen at the party. Yes. So I think that's that's quite a principle yeah. of low life. Is no, the only one that wasn't that great was uh, where there was no room to chat. Yeah,
3: yeah.
5: One of the worst things when you go out and you you like you're with your friends and then you can't. There's nowhere to actually catch up, and you're just in the in the really noisy bit for forever and ever. And you can't.
3: <laughs> Yeah. Slightly random question: Did you notice a problem when they brought in the smoking ban? of maintaining a dance floor with a smoking ban.
1: Yeah, I, it actually had a really big impact. I remember the the weekend that they brought in the smoking ban in, in Ireland, which which came in maybe like about two years before the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did a gig in Limerick. And when you're DJing and you're fairly experienced, you generally have control over the dance floor. Yeah, yeah. You can totally control it. And suddenly there was competition nicotine was my <laughs> new enemy <laughs> and I couldn't all of a sudden people in the middle of a record for no reason would all piss off to go and have a fag yeah. and suddenly you were like shit this is a this is a problem and it, and it took me about two years to kind of get my head around yeah, yeah, that. Well,
3: it, it, I really noticed it as a Punter mm. really noticed it, mm. you know. It's, yeah, something, it, the it, doors opening, closing all the time. and yeah, there would
1: be a lot of random, uncontrollable departures from the dance floor, which was very difficult to kind of get your head <laughs> yeah, around. Yeah. Yeah, it would throw you. On. How did you, you adapt?
5: Your, did you adapt? What did you, you do?
1: You adapt, and also fewer people smoke. I yeah, uh, so, yeah. You know, cheesy that floor of fillers. Else. That's.
4: <laughs> Water
0: cheesy <laughs> <war, laughs> juicy <fruit> fillers, <laughs> getting honest too. Frank, you mentioned. You, I was interested to hear you say that originally last night was going to be well, it put in a different title, but it was going to be a book about disco, mm. which is a particular like dance for passion of mine. So I was fascinated, you know, to read the disco chapters way back when and to revisit them. Tell us about the, you know, the process of we were chatting before we started recording. Process of doing this book how much more difficult it was to get interviews to track people down i mean it was i'm amazed that you managed to do this over the space of two years it's it's enormous book
2: we Uh, had a body of interviews to begin with i think we've both been interviewing a lot of people who ended up in the story and, and and were quoted even from interviews we'd already done yeah but once we'd got the structure down we realized that you know most of the people we needed to speak to were in new york chicago london and we just set out to interview them. Uh, It was as simple as that, Mm. and we sort of divided it up. So, I mean, the classic, we went over for two and a bit weeks together, and I was going up to the Bronx every day and interviewing the founding fathers of hip-hop while Bill was down in in the village talking to all the disco um, pioneers. To answer your question about the process, the process was really a backwards relay. It was like, okay, who taught you this? Who was important to you? Who was influential to you? And I think in New York, that The hip hop story had, uh, apart from David Toot's book, no one had written about hip hop. We didn't even know if Cool Hurt was still alive. Mm-hmm. People kept mentioning Cool Hurt. We got
3: on the site <laughs> your fantastic interview, which isn't where he gives you a tour yeah. of the Bronx you know, showing you like where disco world was yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's yeah. just it's just brilliant. And then at the end it's was some discussion about money possibly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> talk talk to my <laughs> sister, was, I think, was the line. <laughs> that,
2: that was the that was the sad realization, I think. You you know, even someone like Grandmaster Flash, he picked me up in this really rickety old ancient car mm. and we went to his house, which wasn't particularly grand. I think he's doing very well well now, I think, yeah. you know, subsequently to being... Understood the histories, understood a bit more. But he, back then, you know, he obviously wasn't doing too well. Even Grandmaster Flash, yeah, who's, yeah. who's the one with the name recognition, so Cool Herc, you know, people didn't know if he was alive or dead. Right, and that made it that made the interviews quite interesting because people were really prepared to get into the minutiae and go, well, who was the first person to say hip and who was the first person <laughs> to <laughs> say hot?
4: <hip? laughs> <laughs> and,
2: and there was competition. You know, I, actually, I interviewed Curtis Blow. I think this is on the site as well. But mm. I interviewed Curtis Blow, and Africa Islam was listening in, right. and, and, they, and they were so, they started having this. Of tussle about who was the original B boy, who was a more genuine B boy. So, you know, these people hadn't had their story told, probably didn't expect to have their story told. And, you know, because of that, it was, there was an honesty to it. And, and, and you know, especially when you meet someone like Cool Herc and he takes you round the places yes. and actually sort of shows mm. you and one of them is a mattress factory. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> it was brilliant. And and we would meet up in the evenings and compare notes. And I think, you know, that was when we started realising there's a lot of connections between hip-hop yeah. and disco that kind of were being
3: denied. All I mean, the like, Brooklyn stuff, the mobile guys in Brooklyn are basically playing disco, but... You know with talking, someone talking over the records and yeah. well,
1: well that, they'd taken the mixing techniques of the gay clubs in right. in Manhattan yeah, and yeah. transported them to Brooklyn where people like Grandmaster Flash exactly. heard, Pete DJ Jones DJ, yes, Grandmaster like Flash, so, people like that, yeah, yeah. And yeah. because we were writing about hip-hop and disco, I think we were able to make those connections yeah. much more readily than yeah. someone only writing about hip-hop or only writing Absolutely. about disco. Absolutely, because
3: you can't take the things in isolation. I mean, for starts, a lot, a lot of music's the same music.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, the yeah, same Yeah, I mean, all the early hip-hop treat- records are really built around disco yeah. groups, aren't they? There's yeah. so many of them. So. Yeah.
4: hear mm. it. Mm.
2: Yeah, so someone like Pete DJ Jones was a revelation and, yeah, and to go sure. to his house and see his gear and him playing gut bucket records <laughs> I call them gut bucket. <laughs> <laughs> so and he was essentially who mentored Flash. So yes. he Flash was the, the the brainwave that he had was okay. Cool Herc was playing the breaks, so he'd be playing lots of little mm-hmm. chopped up tiny bits of records. But he never made much effort to mix them on the beat. Right. So you'd have a you know thirty second great bit of dancing, and then you'd have to reset <laughs> and cut chunk. Whereas Flash had seen Pete J J Jones and Cool Herc, and decided to synthesize the two. And that, you know, uh, and he'd learned all the tricks of, of actually beat matching and mixing records together from Pete Jones.
3: Yeah. Fantastic stuff. I actually love the book. I mean, you know, because this is a story you hadn't been told before, you know, really hadn't been told before. And it gives you a sense that there's this massive hinterland of, of life. And it's not a rock story. It's got It's a very different thing. It's not about bands. It's not about those sorts of individuals. And and it's about communities, whether it's a rec room in a housing estate in South Bronx or, or whatever. Uh, and community is, I think, one of the things which runs right through dance music from
1: beginning yeah, to yeah, I don't think it's any coincidence that lots of the clubs kind of it, the names of them evoke that community, the shelter, yeah, you know, house and all of these different things, yeah, yeah. the loft. Sanctuary. they're all yeah, the sanctuary, yeah. Yeah, all of yes. them are very much about kind of a, a safe space for people to come together yeah. into, and 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 I think that's why it's often a story of black, Latin, gay, yeah. yes. marginalized communities coming together to kind of. Sell celebrate yeah. whatever their differences are. And and uh, I think that's been an, a really important part in the kind of development of dance music.
4: Yeah.
0: When we get to Paradise Garage, then terms like the temple and sacred ground come through in your book, don't they? And so Larry Levan is, is such a central figure in the, the second disco chapter. You talk about, I think, the age of the DJ producer. Yeah. So just... For listeners who may not know the story, tell us why Larry Levan was so important, and that club was 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 such a sacred ground
1: well what? i The first reason is that he had a very strong connection and relationship with Frankie Crocker. So also his club was open from 77 through to 87, so it's 10 years. That's quite, in in club terms, it's a long time. You know, often clubs don't last more than two or three years. So it dominated the landscape in New York for 10 years and Frankie Crocker would often be in the booth with him, hear a record that Larry played, and it would be on the radio the following morning. Mm-hmm. So that was an important thing. But also, he was just an unbelievably adventurous DJ. He'd play all kinds of records where you like, really? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but did it with such force of personality yeah. that he, he would win you Pat over was Pat, Pat, Pat <laughs> a, a battlefield there battle was a massive record <laughs> at the Paradise Garage, and he would great, do all it. of these things yeah. sometimes he 'd play a movie and everyone would sit down and watch it. Um, <laughs> he just did a lot of different things that were very brave and heartbeat by Tyler Gardner, which is a very, very slow, more like a hip hop kind of tempo record at a time when everything was up tempo. He really plugged that and plugged that and plugged that. And I think Danny Crivet in the book mentions him playing it five or six times in in the night. Clearing the floor. floor, But by the end of the night, he's turned it into an anthem, and that's what he was like. And because he played all night, he had that ability to kind of go back to a record and play it again. He wasn't playing a two-hour set. He was playing a 12-, 13-hour mm. set. Fantastic. And I think that makes a huge difference. And I think it's a bit sad, really, that the British idea of having two-hour guest slots has infected America and kind of ruined a lot of those clubs in New York because that was something that really struck myself and Frank when we were first going out to clubs there, that... Junior Vasquez was not a guest. He was the resident and no one else played there. Yeah. And, and in fact, if they had another night at the Sound Factory, Junior wouldn't even let them play in his DJ booth. They had to play on the stage. As far as <laughs> he was concerned, that was his house.
4: That's fantastic. And you
1: weren't coming in it. You were trusted. brilliant. And and his DJ booth was amazing. It had like at the back of it, it had um, a three piece suite. A toaster oven. It, it had a kitchen. <laughs> it had a toaster oven. <laughs> a, a toaster oven. I mean, it was it was literally like an apartment. With records in it, <clears throat> except the window wasn't looking out onto the street. It was looking out onto a, a big square of two thousand gay men dancing. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I think that.
2: I mean, that's the relationship that these guys had with their dance floor, yeah. and that's why it was so intimate, and that's why mm. it's so spiritual. Because you know, people would talk about, "Oh, he's in a bad mood tonight," and and you, you'd think about the there's there's the story about people would notice if Larry had changed the colour of a light bulb over the dance floor. <laughs> yeah,
4: noticing things and polishing,
2: yeah, the, waste polishing paper the bins. It was it wasn't temple.
4: I mean, you
2: know, I, I I'll be on record. I've had the most spiritual moments of my life in in the sound factory. That, those were the most the closest I came to religion. And and I think that's that's true for a lot of people where night climbing becomes important yeah. to them. That's yeah. And and those guys and that time sort of early eighties through the eighties, mm-hmm. I guess that the DJs who were doing that, they just epitomized what a DJ could be. I think that's the reason Larry Levan is so famous because he just epitomized a DJ who had this incredible relationship with his dance floor. He also had the ability to break records. And he also was at that time where it's like, oh, you're the best person to remix records and make them better for the dance floor. Mm. So it was the same time, this sort of early, early to mid-'80s were where DJs started to be remixers, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he epitomised mm. that, and, and the DJ would become the expert in making people dance because that's what they are.
3: And then you know, also the man had a musical relationship with the great Arthur Russell, who was a completely different beast altogether, sort of a white, gay, ethete and sort of art art musician. And the fact that these two guys could make really mad records together, I mean, a all over in my face. You Which
1: know, is, a woman singing fabulously out of tune on it. <laughs>
4: <laughs> it's, it's such a great record.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I, often they would have records that no one else had yeah, yeah. for years and years. I've, I've heard so many stories of like, Larry Levan had this version of of Trapped, for example, by Colonel Abrams. Mm -hmm. It's a version that he played that that has never come out. And nobody seems to know what it is and who has it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Junior would play. I remember uh, an act called Funky Green Dogs. I mean, he had a track called Fired Up, which ended up being a pop hit over here about three years later. But he had that for a year before the sound factory closed and about two years before it was released so there were records like that that you would go there because you knew you'd hear this track or that track which actually was also a little bit the same as northern soul DJs where they would have an exclusive Mm. that no one else knew or they'd cover it up so no one could work out what it was Mm. Um, and it gave them kind of extra cachet among dancers well when I
4: see you you make me lose all control should deep in my soul, yeah And when I feel you, it feels like I'm in
0: heaven it goes on forever like a Should we jump back over this side of the pond? Because I think you moved back to London in 96. Yeah. I mean, you probably... I'm sure you were going back and forth and all of that. But how do you remember the sort of difference between you know, the London scene and the New York scene. What did you find when you moved back here permanently? What was changing with moving into the, the age of super clubs? What you call super club nonsense. Which <laughs> <laughs> absolutely struck me. So what uh, was, how do you remember uh, Well I do from? remember, I mean it was
2: before I came <clears throat> back permanently but I remember coming back a few times, probably, I mean I, maybe as early as 92, 93 I remember going to some parties here and realising everyone was looking at the DJ. Yeah. And I think that was the thing that struck me most because I'd never seen that and I think that had kind of started i guess post rave as as clubs opened and took that rave energy indoors i think that adoration of the dj started happening uh you know there's nothing as as it is now but I, I think that was the biggest thing that i noticed the music was very different as well i think yeah. that the music in new york was still a little bit you know a few bpm slower and a bit more disco-y and and the house music that you heard there was a lot more classic house as as we'd call it and, so, yeah, I mean, the the, the differences were there. I, I, I remember, I mean, being out there, and you'd be able to speak better on this, Bill, but, I mean, the, looking at the charts in the UK and the charts in the U.S. It was completely different, were not it? Yeah, the they were, that, re-
1: Records that were big for us in New York were, were often completely unknown. There was a Sheena Easton record, 101, which had a David Morales mix, which was a huge record at the Sound Factory, but it was a completely unknown record in the U.K. Um, written and produced by Prince, remixed by David Morales. It's like a proper house classic in New right. York. Yeah, it, the one big difference I would say is that you could go to a straight club in London and it wouldn't be crap. Whereas <laughs> New York, all the straight clubs were crap, basically, they? <laughs> apart from maybe Giant Step. Which yeah, was...
2: were, yeah, that, that, that's a little sweeping. but I mean, <laughs> Giant, Giant Step was a real phenomenon, and and I wrote about that for ID. But Giant Step was the whole kind of Guru Jazzmataz era, yeah, where, yeah. where hip hop started sampling a lot of jazz music. And of course, New York has a lot of amazing jazz musicians. So Morris Bernstein and Jonathan can't remember his last name. No, the, I can't. The, 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 these two guys, uh, Morris, is now a, a big gig on, impresario, putting on big concerts and things. But they they launched this club Giants that they were English and South African, by the way. So they they had a different view on the whole kind of. New York music but Giant Step was really really fun and interesting and that was bringing hip hop and jazz together really in a club setting Mm -hmm. and then I think the other thing that was really exciting towards the end of our time there, there was a lot of People realized that you didn't have to have a big club to have two record players two turntables set up so a lot there was a lot of energy where there were like lots of different bars happening right mm-hmm. and I think that would, that was kind of killed by Giuliani who basically reinforced the laws that prevented that yes. so that the cabaret law which yes. is about you can't have more than three people moving rhythmically or something. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Giuliani you know never a hero to many people in New York even over nine eleven but he you know he, he tried to close down as many nightclubs as he could especially the smaller ones which is
3: just bar it's <laughs> Cause his hair dye would have down face gone into
2: and the other energy I, I have to say was the the techno energy and, and the younger younger side of things which grew into the American rave movement was a club called NASA which was again Started uh, there was a lot of English people involved in that
1: um, DJ DJ DB, DB
2: yeah. who uh,
1: was he working where was he working Profile wasn't he Or Smile I, was I, his I label? can't remember but he's another British DJ that had gone over there right. and mm. kind of was replicating the kind of hardcore slash rave scene yeah. in in New York. And that, that was that was a pretty amazing club for energy, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean,
2: you know, not to our taste, but the the, <laughs> the energy was amazing, and yeah. and it's actually the the film Kids is a sort of recreation of the scene that built around there. So right, that was there's a few nightclub scenes in that, but that that was a really important sort of touchstone for America, kind of creating its own sound, I suppose, and 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 you know, they definitely wanted it harder and faster.
3: Which what turned into ultimately into EDM? Or... Yeah,
2: I think that's the roots of, of, of that. I mean, the, the rave movement over there was curtailed pretty badly over the ecstasy issue. Right. So there was this very grassroots rave movement and it was supporting... There was quite a few DJs coming over there but there was also quite a lot of homegrown talent that were playing at these big raves and that was squashed... I, I struggle to remember the date. I guess mm. around 94, 95, would it be?
1: Maybe, yeah. Something like
2: that. And then there was a a sort of marketing masterstroke. Instead of calling them raves, they called them festivals. And suddenly it's great. And how much money do
3: you need investing in this? Yeah. And and that's. If you go to Las Vegas now, it's like EDM City. There's Mm. just like huge events and all of the casinos. And these guys earning tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of of dollars, (laughs) to, to play utterly ghastly music. So appalling crowds of, you know, <laughs> yeah. vile people, basically.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, it is, it's a corporate victory. Mark, say it's, what you really <laughs> mean. <laughs> yeah, because he Star- Star- knows how you really that. feel, <laughs> Mark.
0: So... Frank, in the book, you in the new intro to the book, you admit that it's it's a pretty male story. Last night, a DJ saved my life. But you have made an attempt in this edition to kind of address that and to get more information in about female DJs. So tell us about that.
2: I mean, the origins of the story, the way we researched it initially, was very much this backwards relay race of who taught you, who taught you, what what was this, this sort of linear influence because we wanted to find out who was the first person to mix records, who was the first person to beat match, all well, those sort of technical things. We had a sort of checklist. Can we find these, this out? Can yeah, we yeah. find out who was the first DJ to play a record on the airwaves? You know, all these kind of things. And they were all men. They were all men. Mm. And, 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 and the story is a very male story and it remains a very male story. Okay. But what we've been able to do, we mentioned almost all the women who are in the... We, we, there's a whole chapter on, on women DJs and pretty much most of the names, significant historical names, were in the original text, but we had the chance now to expand on their stories. Right. So, and I think that's that's true of the whole book is that as you as you get more, I mean, it's eight hundred and something pages now, so it's definitely <laughs> a lot bigger than it was at the beginning. And yeah. I think the more space you have to tell stories, the more you can tell stories away from that main narrative. And so, we've told the story of of, of women DJing, and it came at a great time because I think the the, the dam has finally burst. And in an in, in a, in a, analogous to the Me Too movement, Clubland has recognised that it has a problem. It's not women DJs who have a problem, it's Clubland has a problem not booking enough of them. Right. And I think that has changed. And it's only really in the last five, four or five years mm-hmm. that that's changed. But yeah, it was, it, was, it was great to give people their due yeah. and to expand on their stories. I
3: mean, interestingly enough, in my experience as a sort of late developing clubber, I discovered, I felt that often women were the best DJs that I'd seen in mm-hmm. many circumstances. And I felt that one of the reasons for that is that in a sense that they they weren't showing off as much, actually. You know, some male DJs it's a, there's a lot of present company present exactly. company
4: entirely, <laughs> entirely. Exclusive.
3: But 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 I mean, for example, my favourite DJ in London, I think, is probably Colleen Colleen Murphy, DJ Cosmo. I mean, because I've seen her doing exactly what you're talking about, four or five hour sets, sort of thing. You know, a where she can, and it's very very deep in black disco, sort of the stuff I really really love. And I've, you know, I think she's marvellous. And I think that the, the DJ's job is to watch the dance floor, is to be aware of what how the dance floor is, is developing. And I think women are often
6: better at that than men. Mm.
1: I think you know it's probably the same in, in every industry yes. to be honest but women are, have often had to be better just to uh, get any kind of any, parity yeah, yeah. Um, mm. and so they know that their mixing skills have to be better than average mm. because they're all women and they'll be judged more harshly what's great at the moment is there's just so many young women DJs coming into dance music right. that, fit, that have, have got that confidence in numbers that mm. wasn't there before now and and we've come across several really incredible uh, women DJs that I've been trying to help promote. And, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's actually kind of re-energized low life as well. We yeah. started booking 50% uh, women DJs at all of our parties. And, and even though some of them are completely unknown, they're, they're amazing. So mm. I'm actually really excited about some of the ones that we're working with. Yeah, it's great. Oh, it's really that's great. That's
0: lovely. Yeah. I think it might be time to talk about the week's audio interview. Which is. (laughs) (laughs) It's these two gentlemen. Oh, yes, yes, yes,
3: it is. (laughs) Um, Funny. uh, uh, (laughs) In February 2005, talking to the marvellous Fabio, drum and bass DJ, co DJ with Groove Rider, and met for for, for, uh, a long time. And it's it's all about his entire life as a DJ. And he's really interesting. He's talking about. Brixton background, blues parties and sound systems. Now, you know, this is a story I think we've all heard before from other DJs from that background, because the, that's the life they all had. He's very, very funny about it, very, very... He describes these things beautifully. He's very interesting about how he liked soul as well as reggae, and that was a line that most people weren't willing to cross in those days. And how he talks. We'll, we'll play a clip about Crackers, and then he talks about being cr- Crackers, and this girl seeing him there, and saying you know what are you doing here and him saying like, no, that's not me it's not me <laughs> <laughs> you know you're talking about someone else from you know well that was <laughs> the
2: thing i mean if you talk to someone like cleveland anderson or jazzy yeah, it, bees uh, those sort of 80s sound system guys yeah. that was the division and reggae was your parents music your older brother's music yeah yeah and it was about i mean the story is about these guys reclaiming the sound system for soul music and norman jay is another great example but that evolution yes. and, and that uh, we've written on, in the book about it was a sort of the the dawn of Black Britishness, and it's yes. like first this is the first music we have that we can call our own, and everyone met in the West End instead of in the in the in the local church that, halls, and it's a really exciting moment. And Fabio just sums it up. Really. <laughs> yeah.
3: Let's have a listen to this clip. This is talking about crackers.
1: was it that attracted you to it because every black kid i've ever interviewed in london always says crackers was amazing norman jay jazzy b cleveland anderson all of them i tell you what was uh, so great i tell you what was so great
6: it was going into a place and it was mixed that was another thing you know blues parties you, you didn't meet any white people in there very rarely you used to meet the odd white guy that used to know kind of the, the guy, the local guys, but it wasn't, it was 99 percent black, but this was like 50-50. And that was the first time I'd ever seen that. And 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 and, and it was the first time I saw colour didn't really matter. You know, you could kind of like go out with a white girl and it weren't no big thing, or you know, a white guy could go out with a black girl, or you could hang around with white guys and, and it wasn't a problem, it wasn't an issue. You had white DJs, you had black DJs. And it was the first time I just felt this kind of like, this social kind of, kind of like, you know, this is all good, man. And, you know, I can kind of like hang out. And you could do what you wanted there in Crackers. And, and you know, uh, the DJ never talked and didn't mix, but kind of like segued the tracks. And it was like this seamless kind of mixture of funk and soul. And it, it, w- it was amazing. Back at the time, you didn't know. It was just like, you didn't know that maybe 20. 20 odd years time you'd sit down and still be referring to this place
1: It's all
3: this is fantastic I mean Crackers I'd never heard of Crackers until relatively recently you know and it turns
1: out to be it's lunchtime, wasn't it? It was a lunchtime. Dance- well, there was an, there's an evening yeah. one, I think, on a Sunday, and a lunchtime one on a Friday or yeah. a Saturday. And it's
3: like school kids bunking off school to
1: go dancing down at Crackers, and, and then go robbing down Oxford Street. <laughs> there's another big feature of it yeah. was like we we'll do, uh, we'll do dancing, <laughs> we do dancing. Now we'll go robbing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Sounds like a
3: great afternoon. was great. He he talks about starting to collect records, starting to DJ. Uh, The emergence of electro-hip-hop, which is very important to him. Tim Westwood, before Tim Westwood became the cartoon character, he subsequently has become. Pirate Radio, which has been central to black London music Forever, really. I mean, you know, I i's lived for 15 years on a Crossways Estate, which is where Grime basically it was born. From from
1: well, much earlier than that was the DBC, which your, I remember being featured in The Enemy and, yeah. and, and that's right, uh, for uh, Time company. Out, the yeah, Dread yeah. Broadcasting yeah. Corporation. Yeah. He talks about Paul Oakenfold's
3: House Nights, meeting Groove Rider, and nights like Spectrum and Rage. Let's listen to them talking about Spectrum. This is just too funny.
2: When you went to Spectrum, did it feel like it was very similar? It was the same part of the same scene, or did it feel completely no, different? It was a di- very no. different thing.
6: Because of the drugs.
2: Right.
5: There, there
6: weren't, weren't no ease done? at all on thing. On, on Africa Centre. There weren't... You never got anyone out of their minds there. That was thing. more a smoking weed thing. Right. Do you know what I mean? Maybe a little bit of coke, but nothing white. But Spectrum was crazy. Spectrum was like every single person was out of it. And you'd never seen people out of it before. And How it was
2: quite... quickly did you catch on to what was going
6: on? About the third time I went there.
2: Yeah.
6: It was quite scary, though, because you saw... <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it was quite scary, man. It was it was slightly hellish, and that's why you could tell people... T- a lot of people turned their back on it, because it was... The music was so loud, and the lights were so intimidating, and, 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 and it was just... And, and then it was very Balearic, so it wasn't very soulful the music wasn't soulful you've got to remember that as well the music was this was like kind of a- flamenco yeah. kind of mixture <laughs> so that's why a lot of the urban guys was like fucking hell and then Acid which was like extreme It at the time was like punk
4: yeah
6: it was just this white noise it's going <laughs> and it was like what the hell's this but because of this because of the background listening to Electro and we was kind of like kept up with electronic music we were like fuck this shit man it is so fucking extreme and Groove's always been really extreme Groove was into p- public image limited and stuff like that so he was like this is me you know what I mean he was like yeah man this is like fucking punk music you know what I mean <laughs> 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 it's so it's so it's, it's infectious isn't
0: it I love the very slightly hellish <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh it's marvellous I, he goes on. He's very interesting about the sort of the evolution out of techno and through breakbeats and jungle. About how these very and and also the scenes around them, how dangerous jungle club nights could be. And you know, it's not. I, I, or,
1: I remember one famous phrase in that interview. He said, "We ghettoed the fuck out of the place." That's right. <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, it's, it's just mobs mar- mar- and the evolution of drum and bass and. Garage. Well, in fact, he does call it garage, which I was rather pleased, because they all have mocking me for calling it gar- <laughs> garage yesterday. And actually, he's, he refers to United Kingdom Garage. garage. <laughs> garage. Um, Her Majesty's Garage. He's very funny about taking the, the name Fabio, flying to Italy, and the, the, the people meeting at the airport not believing it was, he was Fabio, because he wasn't Italian or white. Um, <laughs> I, I know, very interesting, again, about the big outdoor raves, like Sunrise and all that sort of stuff. And also about how, certainly, for most of his experience, was so tightly London-based. And we'll play a clip at the end of the, the podcast where he talks about going to the wild West Country and slough, or slough, <laughs> as he calls it. Uh, I, think
2: he en- <laughs> I think he encapsulates a trajectory that's... that's so, so many people had that trajectory from reggae to soul yeah. with a bit of punk in between and then into House Music and Acid House and Balearic, I think he encapsulates that whole trajectory beautifully. Absolutely. And,
1: and also, I think that generation produced Stormzy and Tinchy Strider. Without them, there would be no Stormzy, yeah. there would yes. be no Tinchy yeah, yeah, Strider. Yeah, yeah. They really Absolutely. are the forefathers of... The, 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 that's the birth of black Britishness for Absolutely. me, is that generation yes. of people I, where, I, they're, I, where they're not rejecting entirely their heritage, but they're looking for something that's specifically fits in with their urban identity. And drum
3: bass is really interesting, because on the one hand, you've got these 160 BPM beats over the top, but you've got a reggae bass line underneath, and that's exactly yeah that, there you know, just just in in that i said fantastic stuff he's so engaging i mean he's a lovely
1: bloke isn't he yeah he's, he's amazing mark mentioned I, I love
0: fabio arriving in italy and you were telling us a story about fabio in italy before well we I, i've
1: interviewed him about four times now and, yeah. and every time i've interviewed him he always seems to find a new story that he's never told before <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean I, i've been talking to him about writing his autobiography for, for the last few years and trying to persuade him, but I, th- I don't think he has the confidence to do it. Even though I know he has the ability, mm-hmm. and so it's it's a work in progress, really. <laughs> but you mentioned
0: this one night, and maybe you can't
1: talk
4: about this <laughs>
1: in the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> 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 Well, it was the way he he told me about this. Well, about the one time he went to Italy. In fact, that time uh, he went to Italy and he took ecstasy for the one and only time in his life. And basically, (laughs) it was before he started DJing, and he ended up crawling downstairs and on the (laughs) steps and God knows what else. And yeah, it was a bit of a disaster. But it is a very very funny story.
0: As a sort of last question about all of that, I mean, how do you see a kind of veteran, you know, DJ? slash producer like Fabio how 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 are they regarded today i mean do do you, do young people coming into the scenes do today they, do they go do, do they have time for fabio and so forth Can yeah they, you put it in yeah, the they do i mean
1: it, i think it really depends on the individual dj i think there are a lot of dj's from that era that are really only playing Sort of memorial events for one of a better description. Yeah, yeah. They're like a back to yeah. eighty eight or a back mm-hmm. to ninety five. There's a lot of, to, a lot of yeah. that. Like you know, UK garage DJs playing back to ninety six parties and acid house DJs playing back to eighty eight. Yeah, yeah. They're not like that. They're kind of a, a, and there's nothing wrong with that. But they've they just kept forging forward and they're still playing regular drum and bass nights. They did actually do a, a rage revival night at Heaven about six months ago or a year ago no it can't have been a can't year ago it's quite recent yeah uh, which sold out and did really well but that's generally not what their vibe is they're, they're much more like we want to play new music and i think as long as you're playing new music you're always going to get a younger audience yeah. um uh, in a way that you won't do for like a back to 88 it's like yeah, you yeah. know 50 year olds going out and dancing in the same way that northern soul is mm. very much a an older person's yes. game these yeah. days
5: how do you think DJing has kind of evolved in the last say 20 years and how did you kind of try and did you try and fit that in the, the new version and what you know the rise of like bedroom DJing like anyone can just buy like a tractor USB thing plug it into their laptop and essentially start for like 100 quid just start mucking about and mixing stuff and what does that mean to you for for where DJing is at in 2022?
2: I think it's a double-edged sword, really, because I think that democratization of DJing may, means that everyone can experience the joy of mixing records together and playing music for your friends and 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 learning the. My daughter learned to beat match in about thirty seconds because there's little red lines. <laughs> yeah. And, oh, <laughs> yeah, you just had to line up the little red lines. and you know a lot or of the Just press is, the auto
5: button. But yeah,
2: <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> so so I think that's that's one thing is that you know it's great that everyone can can get in on the act. But I think the other side to it is the economic changes. You know, people used to make a living, a really good living, putting yeah. out dance singles. And, you know, you'd, you'd have a hit in New York, you'd sell 10,000 copies or something. That's, that was a sort of dance floor hit. More. I, remember, more right, I
1: mean, a, an average 12-inch release when in the mid-90s would have been between two and, and 5,000. And a hit could be anywhere up to 35,000 12-inch right. singles. So there's uh, mm. now you're talking in the hundreds a big yeah. record now would sell a thousand maybe yeah. fifteen hundred A DJ goes to
5: phonica and they'll listen to everything then go and download it at home, basically yeah. well
1: so. yeah i mean there's a lot of people that do vinyl only releases yeah. in order to to maintain yeah. that kind of yeah, culture yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah i mean it's i don't think fundamentally DJing has changed because it's still the same experience of like someone trying to connect with a dance floor playing music. Yeah. That's essentially what yeah. it is. The technology that you deliver it with has changed, yeah, yeah. but I don't think fundamentally yeah. what you do as a as a as a uh, uh, craftsman or an artist has changed.
3: I mean, my, my one sort of thing that, you know, when certainly a lot of DJs we all know moved onto laptops and to computer DJing... Uh, and selecting a record from a, a, a list of, like, nine-point aerial on a screen <laughs> is very different from flicking through your record bag.
1: It's very difficult. I mean, I, yes. I, I, I've moved from vinyl to CDs to... to I use box now, and... I've got, like, a mini Samsung thing, which has got 100 gig on it. Mm -hmm. No, 500 gig on it. And so I can carry about 2,000 songs with me at any Mm -hmm. one time. But you have to really, really know the names of the artists. You have to know the names of the songs because you're like, what the hell is it called again? Yeah. Whereas in the old days, you'd flick through and you're like, oh, oh I know, one. it's got a red sleeve. Yeah, 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 and yeah, you yeah, could yeah. find it almost yeah. instantly. You have mm. so many visual cues to work from. Uh, and
3: there's a physicality in that as well, which, you know, is just something lovely about it, about seeing someone rooting through the record bag, finding the record, putting
1: it on, playing it. Yeah.
3: Is is just a, sort of a nicer experience than someone's
1: peering at them mm-hmm. uh, uh, aesthetically. There's no question yeah. that it that it is a better and nicer experience. And um, looking at a twelve inch sleeve on on a on a shelf is a much nicer physical yeah. aesthetic experience.
2: And you have the gut the, the gut connections. You know, it's the one with the tree on it will make them yes. go crazy. You know, you you yeah. have those emotional connections.
3: That just the bend of a corner of the sleeve <laughs> can tell you that that's the record you want. But, but
1: the fact the fact is, I can turn up to a gig. Anywhere in the world now with uh, this thing yes. in my pocket that can make everyone go mad, yeah. and You're right. I don't have to carry twenty-five yeah. kilos of bloody records <laughs> anymore. Yeah. And I feel like I've done my time yes. in the trenches, and I don't really need <laughs> yeah. to do that anymore.
2: There's, yeah. there's new creativity as well. <laughs> I think that when I first DJed using record box on a on a usb stick what i realized was you could go oh i want to see all my songs in bpm order so i'll know all the songs that are roughly i could play next so suddenly you've got this new way of randomizing it because if you had to go oh here's here's the records i packed for tonight you might have 10 or something that you'd go oh but if you've suddenly got 100 records that you can mix in, you, you're much more likely to do a left-field yeah, sort yeah, of choice. And on
1: top of that, you can also tag tracks as well. Yeah. So, like, you can just write banger.
4: And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then you just <laughs>
1: search for your list of leaving. bangers. Everyone's going then, for a smoke. Quick!
2: <laughs> <laughs>
5: banger! Pull the banger. No, no, I mean, you know, those, yeah. those things
1: are pretty yeah. useful. So there are things that you do have that you couldn't have had in the past. And the stuff
2: that Francois Kavorkin' is doing now with the stems... Uh, uh, that's worth a look that there's this new AI technology that will pull out the stems from any record so instead of having to have the multi-track before you could do that you can now do that it'll suck out the baseline it will suck out the vocal right and and he's doing amazing things cuz he's, he's yeah. got he's got all the stems anyways but he's doing this
1: amazing sort of up with a, go, sort of kitchen a table on of, he, he'll yeah. do, he'll do one track and take it apart he did running up that hill by Kate Bush earlier on in the week after uh, all the stuff right. about her big on Stranger wow. things and he's just completely rewired the track how interesting
4: so, yeah there definitely yeah, creative amazing.
5: possibilities that have been opened up by all of that, that yeah. you know the kinds of mixes you can do the kinds of speeds you can mix between records it's like you know it's it's all different yeah. so it's I, mean, really- I suppose
3: i have to fight my own battle with my propensity to nostalgia yeah. you know which applies to all kinds of stuff all kinds of music you get reached a certain age and you start you find yourself looking back far more than you're looking forward you know so it's, it's really good Good to hear that actually these things which, you know, I would find slightly not sure, are actually liberating for you as DJs in many respects. Yeah. Or, or, or yeah. fantastic, useful. I think the DJs are permanent revolutionary. Yes. And I think if you
2: were to have the debate between DJs and musicians, that's that's the difference. The difference is a DJ isn't tied to their cast. Yeah. They don't have to play their hits. They don't have to play the same style sure. as the last record. They can go completely yeah, yeah. different. So that freedom, and I, and this was really... I guess the, the, the fundamental theme of the book, we wanted right. to put this forward, that the DJ has more freedom to create new forms of music than, than, than anyone else right. because they can, you know, if you think about rhythm and blues, that was all these weird little local scenes in the US suddenly became fused together by radio. Yeah. So suddenly you can play tracks that no one would have heard yeah. in their locality. So I think that, that idea that the DJ is always looking for the next new noise, <laughs> they're always looking for the next big hit, because they don't want to play the same old shit they don't want to play the same stuff they played last time mm. yeah. and that's you know that's probably when, when you're talking about the sort of greatest hits DJs or back to 88 DJs that's what separates the people who've transcended that I mean we are talking about Francois using this incredible technology he was from the first oh, the disco like, DJs yes. so he's, he's one of those people who, who runs all
1: the way through all like, I mean, the one, yeah I mean he's named in Rapture by Blondie. <laughs> he's, he's been around a long time and yeah. he's still pushing forward that's great mm. Mm.
0: You know, it's been wonderful talking to you guys about Last Night at DJ Saved My Life, which, what is the the pub date for the new edition?
2: Uh, July of the 8th, 8, 8th
0: July, July of the 8th, so we're slightly ahead of the curve, which we like. Yes. But it's wonderful. I'm looking at the hard copy on the table here, and it is a, it's a magnificent... It's vast! It's 800 <laughs> it's huge, yeah. pages, and it looks beautiful. And uh, like you're in good hands with Lee Braxton, I'm really looking forward to receiving our copy in the mail (laughs) (laughs) so thank you everyone who's got any interest in this and this subject and this history, this DJ history, should rush up and buy it And it, if you
1: pre-order it on Bandcamp, you get... If you pre-order it via Heavenly Recordings Bandcamp, yeah. you get a free kind of um, Repro. Uh, Vinyl Maniacs, which was a, an 80s fanzine run by Charlie Grappone. With a great at, interview uh, with Maniac. Sylvester in it. Which yes, is exactly. Just yeah. And very photographs cool.
2: from Keith Haring's birthday party, which is pretty celebrity-studded. Yeah, very, fantastic. very cool. Oh, that's
0: wonderful no easy way to segue or seg you as Fabio pronounced no, no. Well, <laughs> <Thank> sweetly, <you. laughs> um, into Elvis Presley but we're going to try it maybe via Chuck D's infamous lyrics on <laughs> Fight the Power <laughs> Elvis was a hero of the most but he never meant shit to me straight up racist that sucker was simple and plain motherfuck him and John Wayne now it's important to say that he did then go to Graceland and slightly toned that down and said uh, that Elvis had to come through the streets of Memphis and turn out black crowds before he became famous. It wasn't like he cheated to get there. He was a badass white boy. Elvis had a great respect for black folk at a time when black folks were considered the N-word and who gave a damn about N-word music. So he slightly revised his feeling. The reason we're talking... Uh, briefly about Elvis is that Baz Luhrmann's, no doubt, rather gaudy and cute <laughs> <laughs> biopic is coming out this week. <laughs> um, and so, so Elvis is back with us. And I just wanted to mention a couple of pieces that we're featuring, along with... The piece I just quoted from, which is a piece called Elvis and Black Music by David Burke from Vintage Rock in October 2015. But the earlier pieces that we're featuring, one is from Record Mirror in June 1965. And it's just rather wonderful. It's David Griffith's sort of, it's Record Mirror rather congratulating themselves for being the first publication to print a picture of Elvis Presley in the UK in the weekend in January 21st 1956 so he said pardon us while we do a little boasting but it is Rackle Mirror's birthday and we have got something to celebrate anyway he then quotes from that piece from January uh, 1956 one Dick Tatham in his purplest prose Griffith says introduced the new star as follows Here he is, girls, America's new Wonderboy in the world of Warble, the very latest (laughs) prodigy in the platinum-plated platter profession. Screamer. Fans, meet Elvis Presley. And then a little further on in that that original piece. Elvis was 20 on January 8th. He hails from Memphis, Tennessee, in the dear old Southland. He plays rhythm guitar, too, and likes to be known as the King of Western Bop. Publicity boys say he weighs 160 pounds and is six feet in height. And who are we to doubt a tall story? Anyway, that's that's David Griffiths. And then uh, from December 68, Ivor Davis, who was the Daily Express's Hollywood correspondent, actually gets to talk with Elvis. If I understand the piece correctly, he actually gets backstage with Elvis when he's doing the 68 comeback special. And Elvis says, I'm doing this show because I figured the time was right. I'm getting it done before I'm too old. He says, I like a lot of the new groups, like the Beatles. This is 68. He's referring to them as a new group. Of course, a lot of the rock and roll today is basically just gospel and rhythm and blues or springs from that. Performers today have learned to trick things up with choruses and electronic gimmicks. But the beat is still there. It's still what I call rock and roll. And that 68 special was was in part, wasn't it? It was Elvis kind of going back yeah, to I the still, beginning. But
3: I've still never forgiven him for pinching Scotty Moore's electric guitar, leaving Scotty Moore to play lead on an acoustic. That bit went in like a little ring surrounded by the crowd. Yeah. Elvis grabs Scotty's electric guitar. And, just,
0: <coughs> and so there's no lead guitar playing on right. that stuff. No, that's, that's criminal. That's criminal. That is criminal. Yeah. Um, why do we think... I mean, aside from the fact that Bohemian Rhapsody was such a sort of massive hit and so everyone's t- trying these biopics now, why do we think that Baz Luhrmann chose to, to to do Elvis?
1: It's such a compelling story, isn't he? He's, he's almost the experimental rock star, isn't he? Before him, there was... Not, I mean, I know that teenagers and all that kind of stuff existed before, but but Elvis was the first one, wasn't mm-hmm. he? And it, it was almost like a... Uh, A Frankenstein experiment in the laboratory of what would happen if you handed up all the wealth and fame to one particular person, what would happen? And so it's got that trajectory of a poor boy finds fame, Goes in the army, rebuilds his career, gets addicted to various kind of painkillers and drugs and stuff like that, and ends. I mean, was he 46, 47 when he died? Something like that. I can't remember. No. I, I do remember. It was like it the eighteenth of August, seventy seven or something when he yes. died, wasn't it? Yeah. So he was born in thirty
0: six, uh, correct?
1: Right. So he would. Yeah. I, I'm not sure how old he was, but he was. He was still pretty young when he when he died. Yeah, I mean, I, for me, he was from a previous generation. Yes, yes. So when I was growing up, I, I, I when I discovered rock and roll and I grew up in a town that was very passionate about rock and roll still, like, all of the Dockers all still had quiffs. My dad had a quiff. But I, I found, like, Eddie Cochran and, and Chuck Berry more compelling yeah, than yeah. Elvis. I do like Elvis's early yeah. stuff, but I just really like the kind of dynamism of eddie cochran and chuck barry moore
3: i mean for a lot of us he's a gateway drug into black music <coughs> yeah this is great but hang on a second this is where it's come from you yeah know, yeah uh, yeah. Um,
0: yeah david burke quotes this is quite a famous quote i'm sure you'll all have heard and i can't he, he said this in 56 elvis the colored folks been singing it and playing it just like i'm doing now for more years than I know, they played it like that in the shanties and in their juke joints, and nobody paid it no mind till I goosed mm. it up. So, goosed uh, it up, which is yeah. which is brilliant. I've
3: got to say, his version of Mystery Train pisses all over Junior Parker's it, original. It certainly does. It really does. You know, I mean, he was he, when he, you know, the, the, I love the Sun stuff still. The Sun recording. I
1: really love like yeah, the I, Sun I, I, stuff I think too. they
0: stand up that really yeah, well yeah. still. It um, just sounds just so vital. Yeah, it's it? just it's so just it's right in your face. You know, yeah, Frank, do you. Do you have any, like, sort of, do you, where do you stand on Elvis Aaron Presley? <laughs> uh, um, the,
2: I, I love those later sessions where, I don't know if it's even Quincy Jones, but there's long-legged girls with a short dress on and the <laughs> rubber neck in, and I, I guess that was sort of the Vegas... Early Vegas, period, Vegas isn't early it? Vegas, yeah. but there's you know there's some big band and there's some gospel backing singers. Yeah. In yeah, that well, he that whole session. It's, it's a brilliant album. Uh, he
3: always it? had great players with him as well. Yeah. You know, James Burton, people like that. You know, I mean, really fantastic bands. Again, the early Vegas period. I mean, he produced that really great version of Promised Land, Chuck Berry's Promised mm-hmm. Land. Around that sort of time, was making some really you know in the ghetto. Obviously, that yeah. he had a, a sort of. You know, a great second act, uh, musically, a really good second act. It didn't last all that long, but he did have it, you know.
2: I do remember that I was in Woolworths when I found out that he died. <laughs> and I, was, I was very possibly buying punk singles.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, i how should I feel about the fact that
4: the King of no, Rock and Roll No, Elvis Beatles and the, the Rolling Stones. Because yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, 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 he'd sure. just released Way On Down, hadn't he, when he died, and that became a huge hit, even though it's crap. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Way I don't know if you remember that. It yeah, was like yeah. number one for Christ knows how long. You no, know, I have no
3: memory of it whatsoever.
2: It's, really? awful, it's yeah. awful,
1: but it was yeah. it was his new release right. at the time. Right. There's
2: another movie. There's um, a biopic made for TV with Kurt Russell in it, which is actually really good. <laughs> yes. I think it's on YouTube. You so yeah, <laughs> dig that out, <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: Elvis.
5: Starr. Don't go see Baz. <laughs> <laughs> Watch the
1: straight TV. I actually went to see when I first moved to London. The Astoria had an Elvis sort of bio thing mm. going on there and they had three different elvises depending on which period and shaking stevens was playing That's i think he was playing the young elvis this right. would have been like around not long after he died and that was really good i thought i mean shaky stevens was amazing in it
2: i shaky can connect Steve. jimmy savile with elvis in one stroke <laughs> go on then so dan davis who wrote the biography of savile after all the truth came out had spent a long time before his death trying to get under the skin of him, trying to put, uh, he was trying to get these stories out. He was w- w- one of the people who was tirelessly trying to get sources to agree uh, to, to put their names to them. But he, when Savile died and still the the, the, um, the crimes hadn't been fully revealed, Savile, all, all his clothes were auctioned off and Dan Davis bought a Stetson and I said to him, why did you buy a Stetson? It's not very really Jimmy Savile. He's like, yeah, well, you know who gave him that Stetson? It was Elvis. Fantastic. Oh my gosh. Jimmy Savile was um, Elvis won Vocalist of the Year for the NME I forget which year but um, Jimmy Savile ever keen to put himself in the frame went over to present the award to Elvis personally Elvis, <laughs> in, American, in it's America American, I went to right. States and Elvis presented him with a Stetson fantastic, <laughs> fantastic.
0: That, is a, that is a tremendous that's story El-
2: that's
3: Elvis Dalton. I think
0: that's Elvis <laughs> done. that's Elvis <laughs> done. <laughs> Tell us about some pieces you've
4: added. Yeah, a
3: week ago, which is still current for everyone. Max Jones interviewing Billie Holiday. She's over in London, 1959, spring of 1959, to do a TV show, and she, at that point, she had because of her various narcotics run-ins with the police, was unable to perform in New York because the cabaret card she couldn't have. Mm. She says. I can't get my police car to work New York, so how can I make it there? America won't let me work. I'm Billy Holiday. Singing's the only thing I know how to do, and they won't let me do it. Do they expect me to go back to scrubbing steps, the way I started out? It's, you know, it's good wow. stuff.
0: And this is only, like, six months before she died. Absolutely.
3: Um, she, she also says, I always try to sing like a tenor saxophone or some horn. That big vibrato fits a few voices. But those that have it usually have too much... New York Times, 1965, Robert Shelton talking to Bob Dylan on the phone, and Bob Dylan says, it's all music, no more, no less. This is around time when it's folk rock. He just just plugged in, was about to play the Forest Hills... Forest Hills, which
0: was was the second really kind of infamous gig, wasn't
3: it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, he says, it's all music, no more, no less. I know in my own mind what I'm doing. If anyone has imagination, he'll know what I'm doing. If they can't understand my songs, they're missing something. If they can't understand green clocks, wet chairs, purple lamps, or hostile statues, they're missing something, too. Hostile statues! <laughs> <laughs> um, Philip Elwood, 1968 San Francisco Examiner, sees James Brown at the Oakland Auditorium. Philip Elwood's great. He's a jazz writer, but really, really got stuff. For example, we recently posted his review of Sylvester's famous opera house show in San Francisco, which became the live album. And he just loved it. You know, this is a stodgy old white jazz player. Jazz fan, you know, loves Sylvester. So he's a strikingly attractive entertainer, James Brown. Frantic at times and soulfully sombre at others. Totally dominated the show. Wiped out his audience last night at the Oakland Auditorium. The Georgia-born Brown is the music world's soul brother number one. He earned the title the hard way and proves it every minute he's on stage. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Lastly from last week is Bob Marley and Wailers, supported by Gloria Jones and Gonzalez at Hammersmith Odeon, London, 1976, reviewed by Giovanni de Doma and Sounds. And he says, which brings us to my problem. You see, I just last night seen BMW by Marley Whalers again. And although I confess I had me a real fine time, a lot of the time I know one thing, I was not exalted. And I went to that show and I wasn't exalted either. We'd all heard the, 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 the live album recorded the previous year at the Lyceum, which mm. is a, an astonishing record. And I think we were all hoping for... That. the same, and yeah. it wasn't. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a curious. I mean, it was good. It wasn't bad, but it's just just something was kind of kind of missing from there. Bill Haley, Tony Tony Brown is someone we we're hoping to find. He wrote the maker melody maker in the fifties, and this is Bill Haley's very first trip to England. It's a report of him getting off the boat at Southampton and getting onto a train and being mobbed by fans. he did. In those <laughs> As you did in those days. Uh, and Bill says, I was worried when they started beating out a rock and roll rhythm on the top of the car. There's a time and place for that for, 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 <laughs> for, for that. for that beat, but it wasn't here. <laughs> Pete Johnson, LA Times, 7th May 68, reviewing what he calls Buffalo Springfield's last gig. Buffalo Springfield gave a concert. L- Sunday at Long Beach Arena, sharing the bill with Country Joe and the Fish, Can't Eat, The Hook and smokestack Lightning. This is it, announced Springfield member Steve Stills as the group prepared to play, confirming rumours that the quintet would split up this week. God. So that may or may not be... Oh, yeah, here we go. Caroline Boucher interviewing Brian Ferry for music, Disc Music Echo 72. The trouble with the art of being a musician is that unlike being a painter, you have to be successful. You can't put out your experimental efforts. <laughs> 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 Dave McCulloch reviewing ABBA in Sounds of 79. Abba. The very stuff which your new music prima madonnas will be declaring genius in 10 years' time, assuring us that this is the proletariat's model for 79. Basically, he he Loved it, uh, uh, he is a post punk, real post punk writer. Which
1: menu was that? Uh, uh, no,
0: I remember uh, him very well. Was I, that the Albert Hall? I think
3: it may, have been, it may the, have been the, the, I, I, the saw, I, I saw one, see, one of the
1: shows at the
4: Albert Mark, Hall.
3: Mark, you went to but see you the voice last oh, week. I went to see the. Uh, how
1: are the <laughs> avatars? I've heard it's really good. I bumped into a friend in the park yesterday and he went and he thought it was good. Uh, I got bored.
3: I oh, really. I um, mean, first of all, it's really impressive. You know, the, the, the spectacle is just fantastic, the lights are amazing, and all of that sort of stuff. These kind of uh, computer renderings of the band are curiously soulless, like they're sort of dead behind the eyes in a a strange sort of way. And also, even though they're making expressions like smiling, it feels like a computer-generated smile. There's, there's, There's something missing there. Audience were going mad. I mean, I was, I was the only person. I was sat at the back with my arms folded. You know? <laughs> as, as, as you, you, you This may come out. Mark, <to> come <laughs> yeah, yeah. like, on, so Who's uh, that Karen. man at the back with
4: his
0: arms folded? <laughs> oh, that's Mark Proulx. I
3: mean, it, it was it was really impressive. And of course, the music's great. Because, I mean, the music mostly, it really is great. There's a couple of terrible tunes, but they've yeah. they, they, Does they,
2: it. They, does it sound live ish? They have a live band. There's a live band oh, playing. Right, yeah, right.
1: So, is so Little Boots playing keyboard still? Because she was. Um, I don't no they weren't fuse so I, I don't okay, know. Okay, so I, I'm quite friendly with her, and oh, she right. and she mentioned on their Instagram that yeah. she'd been selected to play keyboards. Well, on it may, that
3: may, may, may well have been. They were in a sort of dark patch sort of just one side of the space. They actually <laughs> there was one number where they're sort of heavy featured. Between various sections, there would be a bit where a song would be would, would be a sort of manga cartoon showing. For, for, whilst they went and Vertcoms changed their stage <laughs> Uh, and that didn't make any sense to me at all. So things like that. But on the tube trailer, I went with my friend Tom Fenner from Micro Disney because he works at BBC, which is why I managed to get a ticket to the right. thing. We were on the t- tube going back afterwards and he starts talking to, because it's full of fans on the tube. And there's this guy next to us who said, oh yeah, I saw in 1979. This was much better. <laughs> really? Yes. Wow. Anyway, it's an experience. I'm glad I went, but uh, yeah, there was, I had my reservations. <laughs>
4: At all, I'd fool around and have a ball. Money, 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 must be funny in the rich man's
0: world. Jasper, you've got any treats for us? I have a just. I'll mention
5: two things. The first of which is a review of Kanye West's "The Life of Pablo" by Simon Reynolds in The Wire, and it's fabulously Simon Reynolds fabulously wire but also a really really great review of a slightly strange album this is Kanye's seventh album and Simon Reynolds writes the life of pablo resists being disentangled from the vortex of discourse got it <laughs> Gossip, leaks, forensic analysis, public meltdowns that imbricates its every texture and lyric. Tempting as it is to hack exasperatedly away at the thicket of context and subtext from the month-long cavalcade of Kanye and the news to the way that virtually every sound and line seems hyperlinked, in order to get through to the WORK, capital W, itself, the truth is that the surrounding swirl is the work, or at least an outer but undetachable layer to it. And it's just great. He goes, it's a long, long, long
4: video. <laughs> that,
3: that is kind of, a, yes. Simon Reynolds. Exactly. Isn't it? But, he, but he, you
5: know, he also, he's very kind of straightforward and honest about it. As you'd expect then, Pablo is bitty. It's an album of good bits and shit bits all <laughs> jumbled together. <laughs> then he can kind of, he lives on a note of, you know, every good bit is marred by its proximity to a shit bit. <laughs> <And 1910. laughs> The latter involves a gross sentiment or a mewling, sloppy delivery emitted from the brain and mouth of West himself. <laughs> Equal parts scattershot genius and splatter-shit grotesquerie, the life of Pablo is a reminder of Rap's enduring paradox. Here's an entertainment form based on personalities that in real life you'd avoid like the plague. Mono- <laughs> monologists, braggarts, slimeball lechers, pullers of rank. You wouldn't want to be with these people. You wouldn't want to be these people. To circle back to the start, that then raises the question... Why do we need rock stars?
3: Fantastic. It's, that that yeah, is it's such really fantastic. a brilliant review. It's a,
1: very, a really good summation of Kanye West, especially, yeah, yes. isn't it? Yeah, yeah it yes. really is. The shit bits and good bits yeah. is kind of really <laughs> yeah, sums him up perfectly. Yeah,
5: exactly. Then, lastly, I want to mention On the Rise, Arlo Parks, Pip Williams in the line of Best Fit. And Pip actually goes to speak to Arlo Parks really early on. She's only released like one single. And only 18 and is now I mean Collapsed in Sunbeams was like you know Mercury Prize winning great really great album from a young singer songwriter who's went to school just down the road from here at Latimer Upper School oh. oh,
3: and it's those bit, girls you with the tennis rackets
5: going off, yeah. to, off but <laughs> you no, can't she's...
0: afford to be a female pop star now unless you've been to Latimer Upper School <laughs> <laughs>
1: but, yeah but, um, there's, a, there's a lot of it about
5: even at 18 she's she's very thoughtful very interesting very self aware and Pitt writes Parks sits at the forefront of Generation Z, Generation Z, the digital natives born into the uneasy wreckage of this new millennium. Unlike their burnt-out millennial forebears, Gen Z are fiercely individual, dreamers, optimists, creators. All this in spite of global uncertainty and chaos they're faced with every day. is this contrast that Parks encapsulates in that coming single. And she says, Parks says, In my age group, there's a lot of prevalence of mental health problems being self-destructive and quite hopeless. I'm not sure if it's social media or what it is, but we're all fucking sad. <laughs> You know, and she she's she's openly bisexual, and she, she wants to point that out, but also wants, you know, she says coming out as bisexual was freeing in a way because it allowed me to talk about experience and feelings I didn't feel able to before. Obviously, there's still judgment, and it's still taboo, but I didn't want to pigeon myself as the bisexual artist. That's just a part of who I am. That's it. And I think it's great because she's a young woman of colour who's out and queer, and I think it's it's important, and her music's also just really good. So I wanted to, wanted to mention her. So one to watch, Arlo Parks. Okay,
0: fabulous. Thanks, Jasper. I think Where's we're done. I think oh. we're done, sir. Yeah.
3: Yes. Last clip is um, Slough.
4: <laughs> 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 slough. <laughs> She's just calling it Slough. <laughs> slough. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
3: From Fabio, which we're, we'll listen to. But um, great to see you guys. Good to have yeah, you guys here. Thanks so yeah, here. much, thanks thanks for, so much thanks for coming, for coming
0: in and talking about your tremendous Fantastic
3: book. book. Last and Night DJ
0: Saved My Life. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's
3: been a huge pleasure. So on that note, bye. Toodle pit. Toodle bye pit. Bye.
1: <laughs> so did you do any travelling? Because there was like Greg Wilson doing similar things up in Wigan and Liverpool. No, we never. We never. A... We
6: was we was a lot more kind of uh, travelling. Wasn't really. <laughs> a thing for us we was kind of like we've got our kind of localised scene here and well, to be honest with you we kind of turned our noses up at Northern Soul we didn't really we weren't really feeling the Northern Soul it was too fast it was too weird people it was Wigan it was like fucking old. Oh, fuck that <laughs> do you know what I mean it was like Wigan to me we could have been fucking Timbuk too we just didn't have a. you know you've really got to remember as well we're living in the age of travel now. Travel was totally different back in the day. You know, there's no way. The thought of even going to Luton, to Slough, to Slough, we used to get ready for two weeks to go there. It was like a big fucking thing. We used to be driving. God, this place is fucking miles away, isn't it? Fucking Slough, God almighty. So it wasn't that traveling thing. I know there were guys that did used to do it, but we weren't. It was like fucking yeah. Slough was the end of the world for us, man. <laughs> do you know what I mean? There was nothing beyond Slough or Slough as they used to call it.
5: That was Fabio in conversation with this week's special guests, Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton, concluding this episode of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. The new edition of Last Night, a DJ Saved My Life is published by White Rabbit and available from July 8th. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper, Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Yeah!
4: Last night a DJ save my life. Last night a DJ save my life from a broken heart. Last night a DJ save my life. Last night-